listening to the Retro Sermons podcast. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com slash retro sermons. Three-day meeting, it is much more rapid, of course, than that. But it has been a very pleasant time for Ann and myself. It's been a real joy to be associated with so many people that we have known back through the years and, of course, have had opportunity to see Various intervals, some of you we haven't seen in many years. It's just a real thrill to be back again and to be a part of the services here and to work with you who make up this church at this place. We wish you the very best in your work for the Lord here. I am greatly encouraged and appreciative of Jeff and Melody and their disposition, attitude, devotion and concern for working, and I think you're very fortunate to have them in your midst, and I wish for them a lot of success and work in the service of Christ. And I would encourage you to lend all the support that you possibly can to them, support them in that which is right, which is their endeavor, and I believe that you will have a good work together. We appreciate so much the hospitality shown us in the way of the food provided both Sunday and yesterday and again today, and that is no little part of the hospitality shown in a gospel meeting. We appreciate it greatly. Jeff did a real good job of leading the singing on Sunday, and Bill has done a real good job last night and tonight leading the singing. You've done a good job in the audience in participating with them. Singing is a tremendous part of a gospel meeting, and I personally appreciate that in the services here. I want us this evening to talk about the church. And when we announce a subject that we're talking about the church, we of course immediately recognize that that's a broad subject. And an individual can take the subject of the church and go just about anywhere preaching that he wants to go. In our lesson this evening, I want to begin by pointing out what the church is. That is, it is a body of baptized, penitent believers. It is not an organization that an individual aspires to become a part of. But it is a relationship that people sustain with Christ. And when they come to believe with all of their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, willing to repent of their sins, they are baptized into Christ, into a union with Christ. Their sins are forgiven, they are Christians, and they serve God in this capacity. And all those who have done that are Christians, and all Christians constitute the church. And this church is a relationship which we sustain with Christ. Now, there's another sense in which we'll get to it in just a moment, which we identify and the Bible talks about as a church in a certain locality, and we therefore identify it as the local church. This 
too is a body of saints, a body of Christians. But this body of Christians has organization that it functions together as a unit. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first of all, I simply want to establish in our minds what the church is, and that is, it is the body of baptized believers, Christians, in the world. And, of course, the church universal also includes those who have died and gone on to their reward. They haven't ceased this relationship with the Lord. But when we're talking about the working nature of the church as a collected body, we're not talking about the church in the general sense, that is, of all Christians in all the world. Someone may come up and say, well, do you mean to say that, that Christians everywhere should not work? No, that isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about working as a collective body, as a unit. There is no power or organization for the church in the general sense to work as a unit, either made up of individual Christians or made up of local churches. The universal church works only as Christians throughout the whole world work. That's the only working capacity of the church in the general sense. The working unit of the Lord is the local church, no more, no less and nothing else, as far as the Lord's design for his church is concerned. Now, that's not talking about the individual Christian in his various capacities of life, but it is talking about the collective unit of Christians working as one under, under the direction of the Lord. Christ is the head of the church, whether we're speaking of it from the standpoint of the universal church or whether we're speaking of it from the standpoint of the local church. Sometimes we get the idea that Christ is the head of the whole church and not the head of the local church. Well, that isn't the case. He is as much the head of the local church as he's the head of the universal church. And there's another thing I think we need to be aware of, and I think a lot of times we have expressions that we make and we can just quietly make these statements and not even come to a realization of what they mean to us. Oftentimes, when you hear a sermon on the church, you hear a sermon with regard to the name, the organization, the entrance, and the worship, and the work, and all of that. And when they're talking about that, they say, well, Christ is the head of the church of Christ. Well, that is right. If you understand what you mean by the term Church of Christ. But there are a lot of churches in the world that call themselves Churches of Christ that don't have Jesus as their head. They claim to, but they don't have. So claiming a thing doesn't make it so. The only way that a church can have Christ as its head is for that church to follow what the head says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the physical body with its various members, and he is using the physical body to illustrate the spiritual body with its members, Christ as head over these members. Now, if my head does not direct 
my hand, and my hand begins to function and act without the head's directing, I am ready to go right then and have something done to see what's wrong. Now, someone come along and see my arm hanging down by my side, and they'd say, well, the head is still over the arm. No, it isn't. Not if this arm is lifeless. Or if the arm just begins to go wild, the head is not in control. When I do in religion what I want to do, then Jesus is not my head. I may affirm that he is. I may tell everybody that Jesus is my head. But if I am not doing what Jesus tells me to do, he isn't my head. That's why I say that there are a lot of churches of Christ who claim Jesus as their head, but he is not their head. They are doing exactly what they want to do. No more, no less, and nothing else. But only as we do what the Lord said is he the head. The Lord states how one becomes a Christian, and one is not a Christian unless he does like the Lord says he is to do. The Lord states how his people are to worship him, and unless we worship like he tells us to worship him, then we haven't worshipped him in an acceptable way. The Lord states what the supervision, the oversight, the organization is of the local church, and unless we follow that type of teaching, that pattern, then we do not constitute the kind of church that the Lord wants. The Lord states what this collective work is to be of the local church, and unless that local church functions in the capacity of the work that the Lord has prescribed upon it, then he is not its head, because they are functioning in a realm which he has not directed. We're not discussing in our lesson this evening the work of the church, but let me suggest just in passing this thought, and that is, when it comes to worship, brethren in general will readily say that a piano in worship is not right. I am convinced that a lot of younger people in churches that practice a lot of things that are not scriptural, the only reason they object to the piano in worship is because it is tradition. And even a lot of them do not object anymore because they are using the instrument in a lot of aspects of the devotion and work of the church. Also, they are uniting, joining together with the Christian church in a lot of practices in which mechanical music is used. Consequently, most brethren would say, these people are doing things that the head has not said to do, and therefore the head is not in control, and we would draw the conclusion, since that is so, then Jesus is not the head of those people who do that. But now, when it comes to the work of the church, it is a different matter. The shoe's on another foot. There are many brethren who are now writing and preaching and arguing and debating 
that it is unscriptural to use mechanical instruments of music in the worship of the church. And yet we'll turn right around and take the same money that the Christian church would use to buy a piano with, and these brethren will build recreation halls, buy stoves and refrigerators to feed the social man, and will buy game tables to put in the building that they have built. I would not give you two cents difference between a recreational building and it supplied with its equipment by the contribution of the saints on the first day of the week. In other words, the church builds and maintains recreational equipment and engages itself in recreational work. There isn't an ounce of difference between that and using a piano in the worship of, the, of God in the church. Not a bit. And yet they say, oh, it's wrong to use a piano. And I've said for years, and I would really like to see this come on. I'd like to see a liberal preacher who builds a recreational hall debate a Christian church preacher against the mechanical instrument of music and say the music is wrong, and then watch the Christian church preacher come right around and use exactly the same arguments against recreation and watch the gospel preacher squirm when he has to answer his own arguments. In passing, let me make this observation. Some of you, I'm sure, few of you maybe at least, read the spiritual sword that comes from the Get Well Done Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and they are fighting, as it were, for their very life against what they call the liberal element in the church, like Rubel Shelley in Nashville and several others, who have gone into conferences and seminars and meetings with Christian church preachers trying to effect a reconciliation between the church of Christ and the Christian church. And you cannot read one single issue of the spiritual sword condemning this kind of compromise without at the same time reading precisely the same kind of arguments that Brother Lee and Brother Patton and Brother Huttow and myself and others in this county made in the 50s and early 60s in trying to recognize and to show people what the truth is with regard to the departure from the truth that was occurring then. And I read the spiritual sword with amazement. I mean sometimes almost word for word the same argument that we made back in those days. And they tried to give answer to them. And now they're making exactly the same argument that we made. They're applying them now to their liberal brethren. Well, what does that say? It is saying that they opened the gate to apostasy and saw that it was going too far, and now they're trying to stop it. And they're using exactly the same principles of truth that we used back in those days to stop them from going, and what they're doing is reaping the consequences of their own teaching. The work of the church is not recreation. 
That has been a thing that has been taught all through the years in the pages of the Gospel Advocate. And yet today, the very paper that stood staunch in those days opposing recreation and social activities sponsored by and promoted by the church, the very pages of that paper are now promoting the same thing, and oddly enough, they say it's the old reliable and has never changed. Anyone who has read it persistently through the years knows that no better. Now, I said all of that in order to show that in order for Christ to be the head of the church, we're going to have to do and be exactly what he says. Otherwise, he isn't the head of this church. Now, what I want us to do in, at this time is to discuss with you the independent nature of the local church. And when we discuss the independent nature of the local church and firmly establish that in our minds, that is going to establish a principle of truth to us that will give us an answer to a lot of problems that exist within the church. Now, someone may readily speak up and say, well, we all agree that the local church is independent. That is right. But we don't all practice it. And there is a difference. There are a lot of people who say the church is independent and then go right on and make it a working unit of a larger structure under a general oversight which takes totally away the independence of it. Is the local church independent? In the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is going through the regions of Asia Minor and he preaches the gospel of Christ unto the people of Asia Minor. And as he gets over in his journey to the city of Derby, he returns on his route and goes back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, then down to Pergam, uh, then over to Italian, then back over to Antioch. But as he returns in these cities and to these churches, the Bible tells us, that the Lord, uh, that he ordained elders in every church or in every city. Now, note that. He ordained elders in every city. There was Derby, and it had elders. There was Lystra, and it had elders. There was Iconium, and it had elders. There was Antioch, and it had elders. How do you know? That verse says he ordained elders in every city. In 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, verses 2 and 3, the apostle Peter suggests, as he writes to the elders, and he said, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and to these elders, he said, I want you to feed the flock or tend the flock of God, which is among you. The elders at Derby were responsible for the disciples that made up the church at Derby. 
The elders at Lystra were responsible for the disciples at Lystra. The elders at Iconium were responsible for the disciples that were at Iconium. The elders at Antioch were responsible for the disciples that were at Antioch. He said, I want you to tend the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Elders are elders in the local church where they are elders. I remember when I was just well, making talks and was at Freed Hardeman in school and going out to preach in various places and most of the time coming back to Lawrence County to Bolton and preaching around Bolton. The question was raised in class and in various other places where preacher students would get together and talk and they would raise the question, if one an if once an individual is made an elder, is he always an elder? Some of the students took the position, yes, he is. Once an elder, always an elder. Well, that's ridiculous. That isn't even so if he stays within the congregation where he is. The same group of people that can make him an elder can take him out from being an elder. Those who appoint him can disappoint him. Church appoints a man to be an elder, and when he isn't suitable to be an elder, then they can take him out of the eldership. And just like there shouldn't be any difficulty with putting the man in as an elder, there shouldn't be any difficulty in taking the man out as an elder if he needs to be taken out. But there always is. And usually the very thing that causes the trouble is the man who they take out and the very fact that he causes trouble when they take him out is an indication that he wasn't suitable to begin with. He isn't of the right quality to be the kind of elder that he ought to be. But elders are elders only in the local church. There are no elders general in the church. There are no diocesan bishops like in Catholicism where one man will be over a district of churches or even in the case of the Pope, where he would be over all the churches throughout the whole world. Now, all the elders are elders only in the local church. You do not have elders here, but if you did, the elders would be responsible only here. Now, this does not mean that they can't go somewhere else and teach the Word of God. This does not mean if they see some disciples somewhere else that they cannot encourage them to be faithful as disciples of the Lord. It doesn't mean that at all. But they do that as Christians, not as elders. The idea of elders in the local church is like a man who is a father. A man is a father only in his own family, or else it's sinful in God's sight. When a man is a father in several families, that's what you call polygamy. And that's ungodly and sinful. And when an elder in the local church becomes greater and bigger than an elder in this church, he thinks he's an elder at large and he can oversee works for anywhere he wants to see or anybody can 
send funds or whatever to him and he can oversee all of this, then he's sinful and ungodly of God's sight too. He isn't where he ought to be. Several years ago, down in one of the universities in Texas, Madeline O'Hare came in and tried to, by lawsuit, eliminate the Bible chair that the brethren operated in that university. And one of the grounds the brethren were so afraid was going to close theirs down, whereas the other Bible chairs that were operated by the various denominations would stay open, was that one of the requirements of the university was that the church, in operating the Bible chair, had to have a central organization to which the Bible chair was accountable. And we received a letter from these brethren and were wanting all the churches across the country to write a letter to the university commending the Bible chair and letting the university know the churches of Christ all over the United States and world, as far as that's concerned, were interested in that Bible chair and were connected with that Bible chair to leave the impression, now watch it, to leave the impression that the church does have a general headquarters and therefore the Bible chair would remain legal with the university. The writer of the letter, the ad, said, and of course, you know, we do not have that. But this will cause them to think, oh my, my, what are you trying to do in teaching the truth? If you're trying to teach the truth with regard to baptism and you get among people who believe that baptism is sprinkling, are you going to make expressions to leave the impression upon them that sprinkling is all right? Oh, I know it's not, but, but I don't want to say anything or do anything that would bother them, so I leave the impression. No, no, no. Truth is precise. And whether you're talking about how to become a Christian, how to be baptized, how to worship God, or the organization of the church, the only impression we want to leave upon anybody's mind is what the truth states. And if there is no central organization in the Lord's church, then the university that has a Bible chair needs to understand that. The brethren need to understand that, and the whole world needs to understand that. The Pope of Rome needs to understand that, so that he might have an opportunity to repent and correct his life. The local church is independent. It's a working unit, not subject to anybody or anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is not accountable to Eastside, to Washington Avenue, to College View, to Isabel, to Midway. It is accountable to Jesus Christ. And if you want to know how strong he is with regard to holding this church accountable for what he sees in it and wants it to be, 
Read the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. When he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, he bragged on them, and then he dropped the bomb. He said, you have left your first love, and unless you repent, I'm going to come and remove the church at Laodicea. Oh, no, he didn't. He said, I'm going to remove your candlestick if you don't repent. He wrote the letter to the church of Laodicea, and he said, You're neither hot nor cold, because you're lukewarm. I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth, except thou repent. Now, if they didn't repent, I'm sure the church at Laodicea continued as a church. If the church at Ephesus did not repent, I'm sure that it continued as a church. But it wasn't of Christ. It wasn't his. It didn't belong to him. Just because a building has the name Church of Christ on the front of it doesn't mean that it is of Christ. The only ones that can determine whether or not that church is of Christ is those uh, is the body of people who make it up. They are of the Lord. If they belong to the Lord, they're doing the Lord's work. They're of Christ. If they're not, they're not of Christ. You're not amenable to anybody else. You're not amenable to me. You're not amenable to another gospel preacher anywhere else. You're not amenable to another church anywhere else. But you are amenable unto God and unto Christ. There's another way in which we can establish the fact that the local church is independent, and that is through the idea of cooperation. Now that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? You mean to say that when you study the churches cooperating together that this shows that the churches are independent? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. All you need to do is go to the passage of Scripture in the New Testament that talks about this. And when you read those churches and understand, or read those passages and understand the teaching of those passages, you can see the independent nature of the church. Notice for an example, in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 27 through 30, there was a famine that came throughout Judea. And the disciples down at Antioch determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. And they sent this relief to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here you have the brethren at Antioch sending relief unto the brethren that dwelt in Judea, and they sent it to the elders. How on earth did they send it to the elders? Because the elders are overseers of the flock. They supervise, they're tending that flock, so send it to the elders so the elders can take care of their people. That's why. If you were going to help, let's say Jeff and Melody are in need and, and you brethren are going to go around and, and make up some money or take money out of the treasury and give to them, who would you give it to? Would you give it to Steve? Would you? You say, well, that's ridiculous. 
Why not? Why not give it to him? You might give it to Melody if Jeb's in the hospital and incapacitated. That'd make sense, wouldn't it? But suppose he's not. Would you give it to Jeff or would you give it to her? Well, you'd give it to Jeff. Why? Because Jeff is the head. The elders are over the church. These brethren at Antioch chose messengers, Paul and Barnabas, and they sent this up to the brethren in Judea, but they gave it to the elders. That's the Lord's arrangement in In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2 Corinthians 89, Romans 15, we have where the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, Galatia, other places, are collecting money, choosing messengers, and sending to relieve the poor saints in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're not told where this money went in Jerusalem, but in view of the fact that the church had elders, where would you guess it would go? Where did it go here? And where would it go here? This is a recognition of the independent nature of the churches there. Someone says, yes, but you don't know what they carried the money to Jerusalem in Acts 11, and the elders in Jerusalem distributed it out to all the other churches. They oversaw the work of taking care of the needy throughout Judea. No, they didn't do that. You say, well, how do you know they didn't do that? Because God ordained elders in the local church, and they're to tend that flock, not any other. And I do not believe that the Lord directed these other early disciples to pervert or misuse or to do contrary to what he said elders are to do. By necessary inference, the money went to the elders in the churches where the need existed. And in the case here, each church raised its own money each church selected its own messengers. In 1 Corinthians 16, 3, Whomsoever ye shall approve. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul talks about this further and enlarges upon it. And he said, If the brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches. And if you want to know some of the churches that were involved and some of the names of the men that they selected to be their messengers, turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts in verse 4, and the church is named and the messenger is selected. The church raised its own money. The church determined to send relief to the brethren in Judea, in Jerusalem, and they selected the messenger by which it was to be sent. This is the individual, independent church raising its own money, sending its own money to meet the need of the brethren there. Another thought that I'd like to suggest to you here, and that is this. This church helped this church because this church was in need. It was arms 
Men are not arms, are? Sure you do. It's relieving a need. It's helping a needy condition. Do you know what ante is? Now, not A-N-T-I, but A-N-T-E. Do you know what that is? That's where people get together as a group. They decide as a group they're going to do something. And so each person annies up his part, puts it into the pot, and this group out of that pot does the job. This money that went from these churches to Jerusalem to the poor saints, Paul says in Acts 24, was alms. These churches were not working as a unit in a collective action of churches. They were acting individually in raising and sending their money unto Jerusalem. Now, let me give you an illustration of what anti is. Several years ago, there was the Highland Church in Abilene, Texas, and the church in Highland was putting on a radio program. It was putting on a TV program. And it was sending out a paper. And it was supporting preachers. And it was sending out letters all over the country and said, We want you to send up here and have a part in this work with us. So these churches became suppliers of money to this organization for this organization to do these works out here. These churches were all equally related to all of these works, but instead of being related to the works, they were related to the oversight. Thus, they were acting as a unit, as one, under the oversight of the elders here of this church. That is what the brethren were doing in Macedonia and Achaia. They were giving alms. These churches are anti-upping their part of this work by giving money to these elders here. These elders were under the oversight of these elders to the extent, now watch it, to the extent that this church contributed to this work. And that's all any church is under the oversight of someone else. For an example, you take the denominations around us. They may be the convention that oversees the whole southern or northern convention of a denomination. And yet the local church has certain independent things that it does. It carries on its own worship independently. It does a lot of its work independently. But it also does a lot of its work through the convention. It acts as a unit in a larger structure. It isn't independent. Oh, it is in some things, but not in all things. It isn't a, an independent church. You notice, here will be a church that will start over here, and one will start over here, and it will be an in, something or another independent kind of church. What that means is we came out of the association, we came out of the conference, we came out of the convention. We're no longer a part, we do not agree with, we're not a part of that organization or that set up. The church here at the bypass 
is not a part of this structure. It is independent. Someone said, you know the reason why the Lord built his churches independent? The answer was given is because when one falls, they don't all fall together. Well, that's a pretty good thought. But I really doubt that that's why the Lord made the churches independent. I think the Lord made the churches independent because that was his will, that's what he wanted, and that's the way to get them to work. That's the way to get them to work. Now, it requires a great deal more effort to work individually than it does if you were a collective. Someone can come along and get us excited and get us on a bandwagon, and we're excited and we get in and we can really go hog wild over some program of work because everybody's excited about it and we want to be on the bandwagon. Even the mob in the city of Ephesus got that way and would have killed Paul if they could have found him. And that's not the only place such as that happened. But the Lord designed that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There isn't any way anybody can keep unspotted from the world for me. I have to do that for myself. Neither is there any way that anybody can visit a fatherless person or a widow for me. I have to do that for myself. I have been in some circumstances and situations that I didn't particularly like. But there was a need. And I'll just be honest about it. And I suspect you would too if you were speaking. When it comes to a person who is sick, who doesn't have control of his bowels, or whose stomach is upset and he's vomiting, the bed needs to be changed, the body needs to be changed, and so on, that is a difficult time to be practicing religion. Christian has no choice if he finds himself in that kind of a situation. You have been in rooms and I have been in rooms where you would think you could not stay another minute or two minutes because of the stench of the smell of cancer. You want to get out. But there's a need you have to stay. You know what the local church is about? You know why God ordained elders in the local church? He didn't ordain elders in the local church to find out what kind of building we're going to meet in, to find out what kind of light fixtures we're going to have hanging from the ceiling, to see what kind of carpet we're going to put on the floor or to decide what time we're going to meet, or who we're going to have for a gospel meeting. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
All of these things fall within the scope of the work of elders, but these things are secondary. They are incidental. The work of elders deals with souls. And the work that elders have to do with regard to the oversight of the church is to develop Christians to be strong. As Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, these men are to perfect the saints. The word perfect there means simply, as in Mark 1, 19, when Jesus found Peter and John and others, they were mending their nets. And the reason they were mending their nets is because those nets could not hold fish if they were broken. But when the nets were mended and they went sailing for those fish and they brought them in, the net could do the work of catching the fish. The same word is found in Acts, uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 12 when he says, perfecting the saints. Saints are be, to be mended. They're to be fixed. They're to be uh, developed so that they can do the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. And when somebody in this congregation comes along and talks to you about, hey, would you mind waiting on the table, or would you mind uh, leading the closing prayer, or would you mind going with me over to see somebody to encourage them, or would you mind taking these groceries out to somebody? Do it. Fine. That's part of the process of growth. It's like a family that has a little child come into its midst, and this child begins to grow and to develop, and it sits up, and the first thing you know, it's reaching up to a table and pulling up. And then here are the parents out here, and, and it's amazing to me what parents will go through to get that child to take the first step. And when he does, they are elated, just like I was. <laughs> just like you were when your child did that. And when elders of the church are coaching weak Christians to take their first step. There ought to be joy in that first step. As we pointed out in our lesson last evening from Isaiah 42, Jesus didn't break a bruised reed and he didn't quench a smoking flax. When you find some brethren with some enemies, flame, uh, fan that flame, strengthen that weakness, build it up, Let's grow together to accomplish the work of the Lord. Now, it would be so much easier to take $10 and send it to Child Haven. We could dust our hands off. We say we are benevolent people. We could back up to our boat, hook it onto our bumper, and take off fishing and say, you know, I, I've supported Child Haven. Let me assure you that Child Haven, in the child in Child Haven, won't get probably more than a quarter out of your $10. I know what I'm talking about. You haven't helped a child. You've soothed your conscience. 
And that's so with every other big organization in the land. One of the things that amazed me is this hands across America. Oh, they were going to do wonders in feeding the hungry, and as far as I know till yet, not one dime out of the millions of dollars that have been raised